Hello, everybody. Uh, today, we're going to be talking uh, frivolously with much gravitas on uh, economic principles uh, uh, with Chris. Chris has been following major world markets since his teenage years in high school, where he began as a self-study on foreign exchange markets, currency markets, uh, Forex or FX markets. After opening and trading for a few years on Practice accounts, he opened his first real money account at 19 and later founded a financial institution of his own in the spring of 2007, uh, right before the financial crisis. After his bank was decimated by the financial crisis, he began studying politics and stock markets in an effort to understand how the world's financial systems could have been left so vulnerable to the collapse. His foray into political structures and corporate finance would soon become his daily passion. And here he's aiming to demystify the complexity and offer perspective through jargon based uh, through the jargon on based on his practical experience following financial news and professional experience analyzing charts and central banks actions in FX markets over the last 15 to 20 years. Um, I think that covers everything. So I think we should start by uh, going through the jargon itself, defining our terms quickly so that we uh, know what we're talking about because um, we've talked about this before in person where economics seems to be this Byzantine, uh, you know, almost priesthood uh, where you have to know the inwards and the outwards and what's going on when in reality, a lot of it um, just kind of relies on a enforced complexity almost. Mm -hmm. And such is so. the way with most complex integrated systems, right? So anytime you're you're talking to a baker about mixing ingredients, they'll invariably talk about recipes, and recipe is basically a jargon for for bakers, right? Um, but the problem yeah. I think a lot of people stumble upon with economics is they they assume that the science of economics is itself uh, a typical science, which it's not really. It's sort of akin to philosophy in the sense that it's dealing with dynamic changes. In systems, so you're more interested in the interrelatedness of the response reactions uh, between systems than you are interested in the quantized numbers between the two systems, because um, the the quanta are um, they're flawed and not just fallible, but they're guaranteed to be flawed. And we'll get into that in a sec. But some of the jargon can't really be overstepped um, before talking about it, just because. Like with baking, you need to know how to speak about pots and pans. So basically what I'll just cover quickly is uh, the jargon that's sort of necessary just to understand concepts. And then uh, hopefully for the rest of the time, we can skip all the BS and just talk about principles. Um, principles being the first word of jargon, I guess. Um, when I'm talking about principles of economics, I'm talking about the idea or concept of. That's the the dynamicness of it. So the formula as opposed to the equation, or I guess the equation will work too, but the uh, the algebra as opposed to the solution is what we're getting at. Um, so first and foremost, um, we'll have to talk about scale and scope, and that's sort of summarized in macro and micro. Now these words aren't definitively defined as Anything above X is macro and anything below X is micro. Micro is just a relative term to ma macro. 
So um, anytime we're talking about anything, especially today, but in economics in general, even when people speak of absolutes, they're not talking absolute terms. They're talking about absolute uh, formula. <laughs> and the formula themselves are assumed to be flawed, but they're useful, so we use them anyway. Um, but it, it's, it's really important to keep in mind that the formula aren't written in stone. They're not laws of nature. They're not perfect absolutes. They're, they're all relative terms to each other. And it's only useful. Kind of like, kind of like how you, Newton's uh, theorems are, and equations are still useful, even though they don't really describe the entire truth of the uh, universe. Right. So with but the falling object, levels, they are, oh, sorry. No, yeah, exactly. Probably what you're going to say there on a certain scale is uh, they're extremely useful. But once you get to the, uh, you know, molecular or submolecular scale, it's there's no use for them. But once you get to like a universal scale, they're also not that useful uh, mm -hmm. anymore because so molecular dynamics would be like an idea of micro uh uh, versus macro where Newtonian would be macro. So you could, you could drop a ball and it'll fall according to Newtonian formula, but that doesn't really factor in wind resistance and turbulence and temperature because air densities change based on temperature, et cetera, et cetera. Cause we live in a giant fluid, right? But at the same yeah. token, well, um, why didn't you take Brownian motion into account? Yeah. <laughs> But in the same token, like molecular dynamics could also be considered macro if you're relating them to quantum mechanics, where quantum mechanics doesn't care about air at all because it's smaller than air. So <laughs> it doesn't, yeah. it's not affected by fluid dynamics because it's, it's subfluid. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, scarcity of resources being the second most uh, important jargon topic. And I mean, it's not really a jargon term, but it's an, it's, it's um, it's important enough to underpin it right from the get-go because economics only makes sense and it's only it's only reasonable to discuss markets if there's a scarcity at play. If there's no scarcity of resources, there's no need to, to economize anything. You can just be wasteful and and you know you just have um, yeah, it's self-explanatory, I guess. But scarcity of resources is um, fundamental to even discussing economics because it's just nonsensical without it. It's like dividing by zero doesn't make sense in math. Uh, supply so and demand. For scarcity of resources, oh, sorry to go back. Uh, so scarcity of resources you're saying is fundamental because uh, the whole point of making a trade on any level is because you want something or need something that you don't have or you cannot get uh, through uh, any other way or yeah something like that there so the lack of something creates a, and the lack plus the need of something creates a, a necessity to get that something and that causes uh economics to happen or mm -hmm. and discussing being, efficiencies uh, like the only the only reason that efficiency matters to us is that we're trying to get some benefit from it i mean if there was no benefit mm -hmm. to be gained from an efficient process we, there'd be no reason to even have a process. You'd just act willy-nilly and let chips fall where they may. But by design and construction, right. but if you're trying to produce something useful and we're trying to do it in the best way possible, we look for efficiencies and economies for this reason because of a scarcity of time, right, because scarcity of building material. Or 
Right. If you, if I sell you uh, a bunch of rocks that you want to use to build a wall or something, and we're in, I'm another town over, you come pick them up yourself and you say, okay, I've got the rocks. But if I say, okay, but I'll let you rent my horse and cart for just a couple bucks for the feed, I guess. And then you can bring all that stuff there quicker. So you can do more stuff with your time. You can not be exhausted when you're done. Uh, and then the wall is easier to build. And then you have a wall for a longer time, which you can use to delineate space because that's what you paid for the wall for um, or protection or to stop wind or whatever. And it's useful for a longer time because you were more efficient and Oh, thanks for mentioning that too, because scarcity also applies to things like people's abilities and their age, right? So for an 80 year old woman, it's probably a scarce resource, the energy it takes to haul rocks from one place to another versus for say a 15 year old to do the same work for that 80 year old woman, they can exchange their labor in different ways because they have scarcity of energy or uh, strength capacity. Um, so all that falls into scarcity too, just even basic capacity and willpower or desire, access, geo- geography, all that kind of thing. Yeah, I remember helping people shovel gravel when I was a, a teenager and it was essentially just paid exercise at that point. Yeah, so, which they appreciate because they can do it as well and you appreciate because you would have had to do it anyway because you exercise. <laughs> That's sort yeah. of beginning to when we talk about synergies, though, is uh, uh, the economics and, and cost versus benefit being the, the next item of note on, on my list of jargon. Uh, cost benefit analysis um, is something we all do. Oh. Uh, were we going to get into supply and demand? Um, yeah. I. I was going to do it with the cost-benefit analysis, though, and kind of jumble them. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, Sorry. no problem. So with the cost-benefit analysis, uh, it's things that we all do when we're deciding um, what we need and what we want to gain. So that can, that can come down to our time or our labor or energy, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the last three items that we note, scarcity, supply and demand, and cost-benefit, the three of them kind of go together in the sense that um, you can't have a demand for something uh, if you don't have scarcity and you can't wait cost benefit if you don't have scarcity and supply. So the, the ideas are intertwined and that's why it's kind of important to know the jargon because you really will wind up tripping on, on ourselves over and over and over again over the same idea without having some jargon that we can just like casually brush it all off to. So. Um, the reason we talk about scarcity, uh, supply and demand, and cost benefit is because they all work together. And you could, at any one point, um, sort of circle back to the beginning of all of them if you only look at them one at a time individually. So just for for the sake of productive discussion, economists have to use the jargon so that we understand what we're saying when we use the jargon, but not to say in absolute terms that um, this item is scarce because nobody has it. That's not what scarcity means. It just means that there's limited quantity. And supply also infers that. You can't have a supply of something and have it be infinite. A supply infers that there's a cap to it 
or a maximum or a limit. And demand implies that there's a need that's unfulfilled. So that's sort of like the inverse of supply. It's, it's a supply of want. It's people have a stockpile of wanting something they don't have. And that's implied by scarcity. And uh, okay. is that clear or did I just sort of trip on my own tongue? <laughs> no, no, it sounded, it, it, it made a lot of sense. Uh, okay, just double mulling it over in my head, fitting it in, letting it settle. We'll in get there, deeper so. into it when we have examples and stuff. It's sort of just, I want to, I want to make it really clear that fundamentally I'm not saying that, um, that there are defined definite <laughs> terms used because they mean specific numbers. They're, they're used as concepts mm. so that we can productively discuss things further than that deeper layers of abstraction. Oh, okay. So like, instead of saying, uh, supply and demand, uh, equals, uh, well, supply or, uh, if at this level, then this happens, blah, blah, blah. No, it's, it's a lot more fluid than that. These are right. just words that we use in order, like as a, um, as a tool, is a, a, a tool. They're little symbols that mean greater things so that we only have to say one word instead of saying an entire book of something. Right. Um, yeah. That's so exactly like when I'm you thinking. say something like, well, it's yeah. Oh, no, go on. That's why they talk about curves too. Usually you'll hear economists talk about a supply and demand curve. It's because, they're trying to reinforce the fact that there's no actual number there. What it is is an equilibrium between two variables. And those variables have ranges, and those ranges are constantly shifting and moving based on environmental factors or market influences or whatever the case is. Right, but the curve is a general trend through changing numbers rather than it's yeah. what well, it was here and now it's here. But now it's, it's here relative to this, value. so it's... Yeah. Yes. And then um, lastly, I wanted to mention, uh, and then we'll get off the whole jargon subject and we'll start with the more tangible and realistic uh, analogies. But uh, motivations or incentives or um, subsidies, anything that is like exterior to our economic model that we're discussing, that's like imposed on the model to affect some type of change. Uh, is a type of incentive. And the reason we do this is because it's not always in the best interest to just uh, to just spend or use what we have just because we have it available to us now. Um, as creatures with foresight and planning and you know education, we're capable of managing our resources for a longer term than just an immediate term. Well, usually oil is a bad example, but it's also a good example of this. Where if oil was free, like if coal was cheap, they would just burn it and pollute the air for, for no reason other than the fact that, that it was cheap. And it's not because they couldn't do anything otherwise. It's just that they'd have no reason to or motivation except for if they're thinking in the long term, which presumably we would want to do because that would be the path of wisdom, right? Having some kind of plan moving forward um, benefits us all in the right. long run. On the oil company's end the oil companies and they probably would want to not just be like, okay, we're making tons of money if we're just burning the stuff, but people have to pay us to burn it. And so if we, if someone was buying it just to burn it, then we wouldn't care. But if someone's burning it to turn it into a product and say, well, look at we, what we're doing with the oil that we bought from you guys. Well, that's in our interest to look, 
good like we're building anti-landmine robots with your with the plastic made from thing and we're saving people it's like the oil company's gonna be like yes i'm gonna sell to that guy more because he's giving me way this publicity that he's giving me is a great incentive for me to uh deal with him rather than the guy who's just burning it in his backyard by the barrel why is he doing that um so a lot of the so, times governments will incentivize um, different sectors of the market. And the reason they'll do this mm-hmm. is because, for instance, they'll want to prop up a food supply chain because it's in everyone's best interest to always have food available. And if the cost to that is subsidizing farmers so that they have a stable income and a stable living where they can plan for future crops, it benefits us all year over year and generation over generation. Right. So... Another example. Yeah, those subsidies are. Oh yeah, go on. Oh, that's a, if you're going to go on to subsidies, uh, I'm going to change the subject. So ask. <laughs> oh, so yeah, well, just subsidies are a, a touchy topic with some, um, but I feel like a lot of, like for the farmers, one they do want food to be available, and that's definitely showing up to be a, um, a thing that's helped definitely in the. Uh, covid response where nobody's really starving uh at the moment um there's no famine wafting across the land because of it at least in north america and um it shows that those subsidies or uh, the the food generation policies that we've had have generally been good um at least up until now um but there's a lot of like subsidies for random companies or lobbies that are looking for subsidies to for their business because they're trying to um, claim that they are a necessary part of the economy. But at that point, it's you get people trying to figure out why. I guess it's the person at the top that's deciding who's the subsidy who's going to get the money and the incentive, right? Yeah. And that's uh, that's definitely a, a really contentious point of interest, and I, I'd like to get into that too because I think um, how we decide what incentives and subsidies and motivations to offer, which sectors, and how much and how often, and that whole structure comes down to being able to competently a- analyze our economy as a whole and decide what to do with it from there. So when you think about... Um, the science of, of economics being something of dynamic and principles and, and concepts, this is the reason we do it, is so that we can make smarter decisions about things like subsidies and incentives. So it's, it sort of brings us back to the, the whole reason for the study, even though it's imprecise and inaccurate, where it's useful and why we do it. Uh, often in economics and economic terms, we'll, we'll talk about utility and I'm sort of going to brush past it a little bit, but not really get into it because there, there's an ism for utilitarianism that um, it, it, it's the more extreme design of being strictly focused on utility. And we, we can talk about that in a bit if you want to, but uh, it's not really a principle of economics. It's more of a school of thought. It's, it's an idea of how things should run rather than, economics as a as a as a study or a subject. yeah i found utilitarianism to be more useful on a personal scale than on a 
global scale because uh, then you end up with the trolley problem. Uh, well, do I kill nation A or nation B? Well, that's not a good question. Yeah. And Mill would have even probably scoffed at that. But uh, on a personal level, it's like, which one should I buy? Well, this one's made by a guy, you know, and this one's made somewhere in uh, Asia. So I'm probably going to buy this one because this one's going to cause the most uh, utility good in my neighborhood. Or uh, you walk up to a person, should I greet them pleasantly or should I just, you know, not make eye contact? Well, the moral thing would be to, you know, be pleasant and cause the most utility and good in your neighborhood. But mm-hmm. that, it, so it gets a little complicated when you get even to the scope of something like a, a family or community. Yeah. Um, so it, it's easy to ask it yourself, does get what, a bit cause, more nebulous. what can I do that would cost the most good? It does get a bit more nebulous yeah. the larger back you stand and the, the higher perspective, but it just changes the um, the thing that's ut- uh, utile. So like from a more macro, yes. larger scale, if you're thinking about the human good, you can start thinking about what your country should offer another country, nation A or nation B, in order to look after the utility of the human race as a whole. So it, it really or, depends on scale and scope. When when that's why I like to say like the micro and macro thing is all relative to each other, uh, in discussion. Mm-hmm. They're not absolute terms in and of themselves. Right. So keep thinking back to like what does my community need? Well, it needs something to get that carbon out of the air. So <laughs> and invest my money in this carbon capture technology or in planting trees or something or in that guy that's like cleaning up the rivers around the world with his like river cleaning uh, yeah, robots yeah. which Treasures. that guy's like that guy's a hero <laughs> or those guys that are like was oh, is this the same guy that's also like cleaning up the um the oceans he just started a company to do it and he's figuring out how to make a profit out of it so you have this you have this how do we go here you have this need, which, uh, and he's doing the cost benefit analysis and he's running this thing to make benefit out of something that is uh, a necessity. But what resources is he filling with the scarcity? Well, he's pulling up a ton of plastic, so he's got a ton of plastic on hand. Where is there a scarcity of resources with plastic? Well, in manufacturing. So you sell it back to manufacturers, make a profit manufacturers end up paying for their own cleanup. Yeah. So, and a good way of using subsidies in that example might be to subsidize, subsidize the recycling company, tax the plastic makers mm. to pay for the subsidy, <clears throat> the recycling companies. And then the recycling companies got a cost benefit analysis where they personally gain from having an operating business that is funded by taxpayer dollars that in purely economic mm. and utilitarian terms, if you look at it from a small scope, would be wasteful. But when you look at it from longevity of the planet and the human race, it, it seems so nonsensically obvious that we need to do it. And that's sort of where you get the dichotomy between the ideas of economic principles like free trade, all encompassing free absolute trade, and that whole like socialism, ah! <laughs> the boogeyman of socialism. <laughs> which they just sort of equated from communism, which they equated from dictatorships and just said, oh, socialism must be dictatorial. I'm like, no, capitalism looks a lot more like a dictatorship when you've got income disparity. But anyway, that's a whole lot. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's another episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking for this one, since we're, we're going to be grounded on fundamental principles, uh, 
we'd start small and just sort of grow to see like how economics applies because I want to sort of drive home the fact that economics isn't something that's reserved for the scholars. It's something we all do in our everyday practices. We do it with like our interrelationships with friends when we choose to smile at our neighbors, like you had mentioned. Um, we, we do it in all kinds of facets of our life, uh, how we decide on whether or not we can afford another pet, like just the simplest decisions, uh, not even, not strictly speaking financial decisions, but all decisions we make are essentially how am I going to spend my time and energy to live the best life I can? And how do I do that without impacting negatively the lives and livelihoods and freedoms of other people in the process? So the idea is to get the greatest good. And to start that off, I was going to talk about maybe like a small village and how synergy works, because I'd like to really I'd like to really underscore the importance and and our motivation for economics in general and for trade and, and market systems and stuff is essentially to maximize synergies because that's what benefits us all the most. All right. Um, do you want to set the scene first or do you want to define synergy for us? Uh, I think it's easiest to define it with setting the scene. So, I mean, synergy in a nutshell is just the sum is greater than the parts or no, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. In other words, More hands one make plus less one work. plus one equals four. Yes. So um, <laughs> I just had to make sure that was kind right. of, uh, well, there's a, there's a, there's a thing in the hiking when you're hiking, uh, two people can carry a certain amount and one person can carry a certain amount in their pack, but they have to carry, um, they can only carry so much in their pack and it gets, it's heavy. And you have to carry like a water purifier, a little stove. You have to carry all your food. You have to carry all your water or like uh, your water tablets or your water um, pump. Uh, you have to carry your extra clothes, your pack, maybe your tent or your shelter, uh, maybe a tarp if you're thing. And you, mm -hmm. so you want to, you know, nickel and dime this in weight down nothing. Now, if two people have it, one person can carry the stove. You both still have to carry your clothes and your and your um. Thing, but someone can carry the pump you have three people someone can carry the pots as well as the stove and then you have four people you know everyone has to carry so this not everyone the the group doesn't need to have uh more than one water pump really mm -hmm. so you're or, not doubling or, or tripling so with every whole bunch of stuff yeah you don't need four stoves so with so these things when you have eight hands you can you don't need you can't just, you're not just carrying uh, four packs. You're actually carrying less than four packs because you don't need uh, that level of redundancy uh, in, in all the things. In fact, at that point, you start need, not needing to carry as much food because not, because, uh, you know, one person could carry the food and you can uh, share some of it. Uh, you're going to be sharing the food at that point anyway. So people can carry different food and more uh, varied food. Um, someone can carry spices because of the of the, uh, the the room in their pack that they now have because they don't have to carry a stove because someone else is carrying it. And then you can carry, you know, then all of a sudden someone brings uh, a guitar or something. Yeah. And um, you, so more hands make lighter work, uh, but it's almost, um, with the word logarithmic work, 
Uh, yeah, it's almost. So, and that's why we talk about curves instead of linear scales usually, because most things in economics and in mm -hmm. nature are, they do work on logarithmic uh, curves or exponential, mm -hmm. parabolic. That's the word I was looking for. So a good example with the hiking though, is if you have, if you have two people and you're carrying now, you can now carry a canoe and you can put things in your canoe and it's easier and more efficient for you to put a canoe on your shoulder than it is for you to hold a carry a pack over your back. Now you can both yeah. not only hold more than, or not only need to hold less, but you can also both carry more further. So like, that's what I mean mm -hmm. with energy where you're, you're not just adding your packs together. You can now between the two of you, carry a canoe and three packs. Whereas before on foot, you could only carry two packs in total. So the synergy oh, is, is like- You tie it all to the canoe. Yeah, if you tie all the packs to the canoe, you're all using the canoe and you use the canoe as a frame while you're portaging. Right. It, six hands instead of four hands will make that canoe a lot lighter. You may need a heavier canoe, but also mm -hmm. if you have three people instead of one, uh, those three people can also pitch in for a lighter, sturdier canoe, uh, more so they have more buying power essentially yeah. to buy a you know high tech uh, ultralight you know, like space material canoe rather than that uh, you know just scrappy aluminum one uh, mm -hmm. or something. So and it's also like the mechanics now have. Like carrying the canoe is yeah. physically easier on your body. So you're capable of doing more with each person mm -hmm. than doing it without the canoe at all. But one person isn't big enough to carry yeah. the canoe with their pack. So it takes more mm -hmm. people to get a greater benefit. And that's sort of the point of and That's the ultimate goal of ec economics in general is to find synergies. The goal isn't just to have more and get more for no reason. The point of it fundamentally is to have more for everybody. Um, so that it's easier for everybody. So, well, and when you have more for everybody, when one person is, so when your hands aren't, say, doing the cooking, your hands can be uh, set to another task. And you can, I guess, specialize from that. So uh, you can uh, prep or go find firewood, or you can uh, go and build a shelter or set up or you can rest. this. So when you come back from that, you can rest yeah. uh, <clears throat> while someone cooks or um, you can set up the camp while someone's cooking. And then when you finish setting up the camp, the food will be ready and you, everyone has more chance to uh, rest longer because <clears throat> you can sit around and chat and yeah. maybe even go off and explore a bit. And that means you, you do can what you came to, to do in the more. You can choose to cook better variety of food or source better variety of food. You can choose to clean things more. Mm -hmm. So like hygiene is what keeps us from getting sick all the time. So th there's all these like um, spillover benefits to synergies. So the point of markets is to sort of have those spillover benefits. Like we don't all need nurses every day, but we all want nurses to exist when we need them in order to do that. We, we need some sort of synergies, right? Everybody works, contributes a tiny amount, and when they need it, nurses are available. And it's like the same thing with insurance. The entire reason sorry. for my property insurance and things like that is, sorry, what's that? <laughs> I think it's good that nurses are always available. Yes. Anyway. I think, I think that's also good. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. No, it's all good. 
uh, yeah, so insurance works on the same principle. I mean, if you have 10 fires um, per year and there's a thousand people, not all thousand people will lose all of their belongings, but at any given point, someone in their lifetime is more than likely, well, I say more than likely, but I just mean more than 50% chance, more than likely to experience a fire at some point in their lives if they live a hundred years. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we'll so we all pitch into a fund and then the person who gets is inevitably going to get shafted uh, is able to work their way out. So because right. we don't know who it's going to happen to or when, sense- but we know it's going to happen. It's inevitable. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm going to start breaking it down um, in, in, into the village se- segment. So um, I don't know much about farming. And before I even get started, actually, I should offer the caveat that we're, <clears throat> neither of us are certified financial planners. So if you're making decisions, financial decisions in your own personal life based off YouTube videos, you're not fit to make your own financial decisions. So full disclosure, don't take anything we say as um not here anyway as a yeah we're more advice. we're more looking at the nature of economics not yeah well how can we the use exploration this to... of thought we're after here <laughs> so um, what is the market not how can i use the market yeah um, and, and the reason why the reason why i want to sort of articulate that is because you know some people are dumb <laughs> but uh we do know enough to know that um, covering your butt is a good strategy. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I kind of have to. <laughs> so, <laughs> the reason why we want to look at economics from this perspective is because I think the way that we're going about it right now in society is we're just entrusting people in the know or who we expect to have expertise on economics to make policies and government positions and. And a lot of people just sort of assume that they are not fit to comment or opine on how the government chooses to subsidize or um, prefer certain sectors over others. Uh, allocation of monies and budgets. We, we elect representatives based on their plans, but we don't deem ourselves fit economists. But then we elect people because they're supposed to help the economy, like he who shall not be named, um, based on some... Sort of idea that because a rich person is rich, that they're good with economics. <laughs> but just like my English, I can yeah, write, but that or English major. <laughs> that or um, with very little information, we think that we are an uh, economics yeah. master, and we know that if, if they just put the money here, everything would be fine. Or if they just did this, everything would be fine. Yeah. Or if they, they don't, how stupid are they that they're not doing this thing that I think would work? It's By like, not oh, acknowledging well, that That in itself. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you are not seeing the whole picture. You don't know what you're talking about. And that type of reasoning in itself shows tells me a lot about you so yeah uh, well there we are and from so. any enlightened perspective the more you learn about <laughs> economics the more you find the variability can throw it off it's a lot like turbulence and fluid dynamics like uh or the butterfly effect for for lack of a another term something more colloquial uh, so yeah I, I was thinking to start off we should talk about like a small confined system so that we discover the point of markets, not by, not by me professing it or lecturing on what it is. I want to show why it's necessary to have a market. 
um, and what the benefit is and the use for it. Because once once you know fundamentally the philosophy of a market, you can make better decisions about how it should operate. And I think that's what a lot of us are overlooking right now is that we're looking at some kind of end goal that's been manufactured for us by people who have means. And that, that was never the intention or purpose as a society to develop a market. So I will start that then. to avoid any, well, that and also to avoid any uh, just generally tautological thinking like, uh, well, uh, 19th century, he who shall not be named or um, uh, certain folks writing manifestos. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> so any tautological or utopian thinking uh, on either side, either pro or anti-markets um, is uh, you're putting the cart before the horse at that point. So Yeah, anybody uh, who doesn't acknowledge that their, their theories and philosophies are flawed or that there are constraints to them, anybody who tells you in absolute terms what they know to be true about <clears throat> dynamic systems is just wrong because in math there are irrational numbers specifically because they can't be computed. <laughs> The square root of negative and it starts with negative. Here's what I'm thinking so far yeah. is at a better spot. You can work with irrational that. numbers and they're useful and you can make tools out of them, but they're not <clears throat> individual numbers. So to get All at right. why we want a market or what it's useful for, or like what its social function is, we could start off just by thinking of a, a closed system. So think of a village of like 10 different people. And very basic, no technology, no electricity, nothing like that. We're just talking about basics right now. So like food, water, um, shelter, clothes. That's basically it. Education is whatever people teach you about food, shelter, water, and clothes. So that's just our little so box. Two families. Using for our thought Couple huts. Yeah, call it two families. Um, ages dispersed. So a couple seniors, a couple babies, mostly in between. Everybody else is in between. Um, if you had everybody trying to procure their own needs, uh, so that means that every unit of heat that comes from a fire, each individual had to procure that unit of heat for themselves, everybody would spread out and go, you know, gather wood or whatever every day. And every day they would go out and gather berries and bring them back. The reason why there, there could be an efficiency lost here is because, if you think about the lumbermen who that was their sole job and responsibility, they could plan out how to best go about gathering wood in an efficient way that benefits all people, not just themselves, because of their dedication and expertise in time. Now, to show an example of how that would work, rather than just randomly going out to the woods and picking from here and picking from there and picking from there, you could say, I'm going to chop all the wood in this area or let, let's say you've got, first you get a scope. You say, this is my entire area and it takes 20 years to grow a tree. I'm going to cut all these trees down and divide all my land into 20 pieces. And every year I'm going to target one section of trees. So there are, are several areas of efficiency you're going to gain from this. One, you're getting all the trees in one area. So you're not wasting time traveling around, just doing a walk here and there and about. The second benefit you're getting is you're making sure that there's continuity of tree growth because after 20 years, you can cycle back to the beginning and you could start cutting down from the same spot again. And in theory, that would be an infinitely 
closed loop because it does take time for trees to grow, but not an infinite amount of time. So being able to plan 20 years ahead and segment off parts of your land and also gather from all in the same spot without worrying about like completely deforesting the entire forest because you've still got 19 other sections that are still fully grown and habitable to, to life and everything. That's a good idea of synergy right there because what you're doing is in although that one person can't provide the food, clothing and shelter for themselves, they're gathering enough wood for 10 other people and they're working less to do it than everybody would have if you just added their energies together individually going about different sections of the forest. So that's sort of the, the first the first little analogy to our, our series of analogies that I was going to get to if you wanted to comment or. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, um, this sounds a lot uh, similar to um, something that I read. I believe it was in a Matt Ridley book. Uh, I think it was the rational optimist that he went into where he saw the uh, idea of trade itself as a driving force in um, in early human civilization. By early human, he goes two or three million years back to when we were using hand axes, and he follows the evolution of the hand axe and how we made these uh, Julian hand axes for uh, out of stone. So you kind of grip this sharp stone and we made them in the same way for like two million years in the same proportions and the same because this is what we do so there's no progression past that uh there was zero progress for like uh two million years almost and all of a sudden they started changing and we said things is that um there was more than one uh there became more and more hands uh at the work because of a climate change because of um uh, accessibility to uh, resources, but also the fact that humanity had spread out enough that we had able to encompass more places that had a greater number of resources. And there was now uh, people that could start to specialize more and more. So all of a sudden someone, you have tribes of instead of 10 people, now you have tribes of 15 people spread out all over when they every once in a while they'll meet someone and they'll, they'll trade with each other. And all of a sudden they start making better hand axes. They don't start, they start questioning how to make these uh, hand axes. And they say, well, what if I made the point a little longer? What if I made the handle a little more comfortable? Cause they can sit there and look at the rock and be like, this rock sucks. What if I made a better rock? Or what if I did this? Oh, that looks, that looks good. This works much better. I can, I can, I can slice instead of chop with this. Mm. And, um, slowly and slowly you get uh, bone tools coming up. So someone could sit there and scrimshaw with one of their knives and create fine needles. And with needles, you can get, uh, you can poke things. You can do all kinds of crazy stuff. You can make hooks and then you can get fish and then you, someone has to sit there and fish. And now that person can sit there and think while they fish, you know, instead of just spearing at things, using all this energy, uh, right. which they then have to replenish with eating that fish. So they use a very poor use of calories. It's inefficient. So when you just, when you've set like six lines out, uh, you have all this fish bone lying around and now you can make needles. And now because you have these needles, what do you, you, you attach another specialization of thread and all of a sudden you can make a net 
and then you can throw the net in and catch a whole bunch of fish that right. multiplies your thing. So, but then he says you find, um, he notes that you find uh, needles and fish hooks and all these specialized uh, manufacturing things from, this is like Paleolithic, Neolithic era still, uh, 400, uh, 400 kilometers away. I don't remember if he said kilometers or miles. Um, he's American, so maybe it was miles. But um, <laughs> the uh, idea was that one tribe would trade with another tribe right next to them, which would trade to another tribe right next to them. And they would, these goods would move around this very slowly, but they would move around this Paleolithic marketplace. And so people in far, far inland of, say, in Europe would be able to use uh, fish hooks caught on the coast with fish specialists. So they'd have these fish tools made hundreds of miles away uh, because someone, and so they were able to, sorry, the point is that they were able to use the labor of someone 400 kilometers away or 400 miles away, sorry, as their own thing. So now they had this tool that they could use for a whole bunch of stuff, mm -hmm. which would make their uh, acquisition of calories and shelter and water more efficient, which means they have now more time to devote to other things. And this happened slowly, 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 but it multiplied itself because as you get that efficiency increasing point by point, you get uh, other progress. People start thinking instead of how to build a better hand axe, well, what happens if I put a handle on it? What happens if I put a long handle on it? You get a spear, mm -hmm. yeah, big old spear. And then what happens if, uh, if instead of just you know putting a thing down and turning back, going back into the bush, and then they put a thing down and go into the bush, and then I go up and you know that ancient trade practice. What if we just wrote things down? You know, I make a. Oh, you're getting ahead of us, though. You're getting ahead of us. <laughs> oh, you're on mute. Somehow. Uh, I don't make a tally mark. How long was I on mute for? Uh, just two seconds. Oh, I think I pressed the, uh, my, my notebook. That's all good. New button. So essentially, he notes that trade was the thing that allowed us to uh, specialize. Um, That's actually just what I'm very into that. Uh, specialization yeah yeah so why don't you uh why don't you get into that then yeah because <laughs> like the useful thing about markets is you sort of need specialists for the market to be useful first so um what we had gone to was the the guy the guy with the 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 lumberman or woman either or um develops a system and that's sort of their their expertise in design or segregating or partitioning parts of the forest to to cultivate resources from and to free up the time of everybody else in the village, the other 10 people that are there. So now if you extend the same concept to the person cooking, being able to s figure out which food is the most nutritious and how to cook it and cooking it from a giant vat, as opposed to cooking in individual pots for each portion meal, you can see how the lumberman's um, efficiencies or economics of trade can tr be transposed into a completely different field of study, which is nutrition and cooking, cuisine, culinary arts of the Paleolithic hominid we're speaking of. So 
uh, I guess just to drill the point home, you could go into that person might be the more elderly who's less fit to go chop wood. It would be a person who's got the time and energy and the experience in life having eaten for so many days of their lives compared to everyone else. They might be the best fit to prepare meals for the group. And the reason they prepare re meals for the group is the same reason that the lumberman gets everybody's wood, the wood for the group, because they will end up working right. less with a greater quality outcome and everyone benefits from it in, in the end without, without it taking away from the person who's doing the work. So the lumberman gets a benefit from everyone else's time being freed up. He gets to go home and get a more nutritious meal than he could have made for himself. Uh, absent the expertise. Right. Cause less of the, cuisine. less of the meat is wasted. So they take more off the bone. You know how to use the fat more effectively. Maybe you can mm. get the marrow out and, uh, or use the bones and boil the bones more effectively. Uh, yeah, or outside and salted and smoked and like all these flavors and spices and berries that you could be adding to it that, you know, if you had to do everything for yourself and you were doing all these inefficient processes all throughout your day, everything would be done half-assed, basically, because there's just aren't enough time in a day to master every single skill. Uh, that sort of gets to right. mastery. And extending that from the cook to the, the lumber, the lumberman, you can go into um, the, the tool maker, as you were getting at with the fish hooks. Now, the the, the fishermen and the fish hook specialist or whatever you want to call them will probably need energy from the woodsman and food from the, the cuisine master. And they would in turn provide a greater benefit to the entire group of 10 in this small society, being that they can um, produce those nets and sewing utensils. And then you could have a seamstress who helps with the clothes because we're still talking about just people's basic needs, right? food, water, shelter. And then of course you transpose that to somebody who builds homes. So I think we've drilled it to death, but it's really important because this is the founding principle. The reason why we have markets and ec economics and subsidies and incentives and supply and demand. The reason all of these economic principles exist is specifically to encourage and extract synergies from each other's work. It's not to step on someone else to get more than them. And it's not to um, to say that everybody has to be poor because that's just fair and equal. It's not about that. The entire point, completely agnostic to the outcome, is to get the best possible outcome, whatever that outcome is. It has nothing to do with stopping billionaires from being billionaires. And it has nothing to do with people being given handouts, just staying poor because they're lazy. That's not economics. That's people's political beliefs and faiths and they might be based on their ideas of economics but it's not economics in and of itself um, that sort of takes us to why we have a market though because as your society grows and ranges of expertise are expanded upon that's when we get into what you're talking about um, where it makes sense to have a central location to be able to exchange and trade people's different expertise because that lumberman might be able to make more than his own uh, his or her own town needs, but they might need something from another town like ore and they might be on the coast. So they've got fish, they need ore from somewhere else. You can exchange ore. And this is where supply and demand, the curves, the idea that uh, there are a finite number of fish that are caught, not necessarily that there are a finite number of fish in the world, but I mean, for, for all intents and purposes, 
the ocean's pretty big and we're talking about a civilization of 20 people. So it's pretty much infinite in this case, just for our thought experiment. But the yeah. reason we have a marketplace is to bring goods to a single place because it would be once again, woefully inefficient to have people going from house to house selling things. And we did do that. And we still do it in some things. You'll see vacuum salesmen, encyclopedia salesmen from the nineties and before that. And, you know, house to house sales is still a thing, believe it or not, because some things are actually more efficient to sell individually, but you need a really big society for there to be a small number of people who need something that doesn't need to be in a marketplace. So generally yeah. what we're going to talk about is a market being a place to bring goods to one spot so that people looking for objects know where to go. Even if they don't know specifically what they want, they know where to go to find anything. And people who have any product know exactly where to go to offload it without having to randomly go from town to town and say, you need wood, you need wood, you need wood, you need wood. <laughs> like, so there's an efficiency of the efficiency. And that's sort of where we start getting these tiers of economies. And that's what we talk about economies of scale as another one of our jargon words but we haven't covered yet. But I think before we get into economies of scale, maybe you want to elaborate further on on uh, on the trade and the benefits of uh, or any other comments you might have on that. Uh, you put it quite well, um, especially on such a small uh, scale. Now, I think um, a lot of this uh, one thing to note is that um, the role of communication itself is a uh, commodity or not so much commodity, but a tool that you can use. And back then you could have gone up to the next town uh, or like you have your, your town on the coast and you, you know, like three other towns around you maybe, or three other villages or tribes around you. And you could go with them. It's like, I've got a bunch of extra wood. Um, I guess, pass it to the people you know and tell them that if anyone needs wood down the line and then maybe three years later you get someone being like hey you still got a ton of wood um and the the message comes back whereas nowadays we could just be like dear internet i've got a bunch of lumber in my backyard and 30 seconds later being like i love lumber <laughs> it's just like well yeah exactly you got almost too much uh down the pipeline now this comes from there being more of a more people to sell to uh but that communication in itself also uh plays factors so you're not necessarily needing to go town to town but uh you only have three other villages maybe uh or four and one that's definitely hostile to you which is another thing is that uh, neighboring tribes weren't always to be trusted. Um, you have a nice little calm, quiet village, but these are not people that are um, trading in a uh, peaceful market. The market can easily be uh, succumbed to raiders who think that they can uh, make more money taking from others rather than trading and working, which is always been a thing the economy of plunder versus an economy of the market um plunder just being go and take it viking economies uh that and um i guess a slave economy would also be some the opposition to this where uh you have multiple hands not making lighter work because one person has a uh, thousand hands doing one thing 
And those one hands, those extra hands don't do anything else and they have no specialization. Um, so it doesn't actually uh, provide extra value, which is why slavery doesn't work. <laughs> um, so you, you've actually, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, you touched on it on a huge, um, a huge thing here. I wanted to just highlight actually. <laughs> sorry. When, when talking about security, um, between tribes and things like that, or not tribes, but, uh, you know, foreign markets, we'll call them invading and looting, um, plundering that to me is fundamentally a sign that those people haven't understood the economic gains of synergy. And that's sort of why I wanted to talk about this today, because a lot of people still have that mentality where we need to kill people who think differently than us. Whereas I believe that all violence and war can be rationalized away because economics is sound principle. And as long as everybody understood it from the ground up, from this village thought experiment type of way, there would be no reason to rob your neighbor or to rob another marketplace. And I think that's sort of where I was going to take the next step of this was um, from markets, we're going to develop a system of rules and rule includes law enforcement and stuff. But those mm-hmm. rules are sort of, it, it, it's an abstraction from the expertise of the wood gatherer to the, to the expertise of the marketplace, the abstraction of where all goods and experts come to place their markets for sale. A layer of abstraction on top of that would be the rules and adherence to those rules to help a functioning marketplace continue and maintain to function, just like having those segments of your forest rationed uh to encourage longevity of your wood collecting. Yeah. No fight air. This is a, this is a marketplace yeah. where we come to trade, no duels, no fights, uh, no, no wooden fair shoes. price, but that means we uh, have to agree on things like mediums of exchange, value of goods, uh, rules to returns, false advertising, uh, misleading, all, all of these types of little tiny minutiae require some person's expertise to manage and maintain and sort of curate to make yeah. sure that anytime there is sort of a, a loss well, of balance that it gets corrected. Well, and as we go, we discovered the way things work differently. Like you, right now is the perfect time because we're discovering all these new things that these new technologies are allowing us to do. So we have to make new rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like uh, gouging on in the internet or... Uh, Privacy rules and privacy rules, property, but like in the past, property in the past, you had um, like very simple rules. I remember it was a the hand there was was it Lublin or was it Lubeck or the Hanseatic League where there was a meeting where they weren't allowed to wear uh clogs because uh they could be used as a weapon in meetings. Uh, so, um, yeah, so apparently someone had taken off their shoes and beaten somebody to death with a, and yes, to death. This is, uh, let's not take our modern squeamishness and put that aside for a bit. Uh, cause trading is a, you do want to maximize your end of the deal. And so people are going to take advantage of that. Um, because you want to be, end up with the most efficient because you know what you want and the other person wants what they want. So you want to make it so that uh, you get the best deal. Now, the best deal in my thought is the one that benefits all parties to the maximum amount. Uh, 
so that you can continue to do business because business later is more business than just business now, which is why plunder doesn't work. You're doing business. It's even more important, actually. Yeah, because if you're a Viking, you're doing business with a uh, hostile territory. And the business is literally just, uh, you give me your stuff and I kill you. But the thing is is that you can't do business with them and they won't be able to make more stuff for you to take after that. It's a one-time purchase. And you are purchasing it, yes, with violence, uh, but you're also risking your life. Um, so it, it's not without risk and life also ends. And once you end, you can't do any more trading and you can't, you know, provide for all your, uh, your people back in, uh, you know, the North, um, in Scandinavia there. So it's a bad deal, but if you create relationships and you make it so that no swords, uh, also, um, if we find out that you're raiding within, uh, any of the um if you know you make a deal and then you raid the shipment after and get your stuff back uh well okay so if we find out you did that you can't we'll break your bench and we'll make you bankrupt which is where that comes from um the so you no longer have a seat at that marketplace when you don't play by the rules Mm -hmm. um is essentially what bankrupt meant um and uh and that's a crucial point of note, too, because being ostracized from the marketplace means that you no longer get to benefit from a lot of the e- efficiencies that the marketplace provides everybody. So the reason the market exists is because it's beneficial mm-hmm. to everybody. Like, that's why we all agree to the laws, even though it limits our freedoms to kill other people. At least we don't need to kill any people anymore. <laughs> so right. it, it's in the whole. It's a it's a greater good than than um, the cost of adherence. 